Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, Canada's public safety minister defends using the Emergencies Act. We met the threshold. And ultimately, for me, at the end of the day, um, it worked. The week of government testimony continues at the Emergencies Act inquiry with Marco Mendicino detailing growing concerns of violence and public risk as the so-called Freedom Convoy protests took hold. Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc testifies tonight and we will bring you the very latest from the hearings. And the politics of the carbon tax. Will the government give relief to Atlanta Canadians, all Canadians? There will be no increase in carbon pricing in Atlantic Canada before July 1st. How are the three Atlantic provinces reacting to having the federal carbon tax imposed on them? We'll find out in just a few moments. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. About coots and about uh, the potential uh, for... Uh, for gun violence and for the loss of life and the fact that there were RCMP personnel that were in the field and all of this occurring literally within hours, not even days, of the invocation to the Emergencies Act, I was extremely concerned uh, that this had reached a new height of both urgency and emergency. This was a threshold moment uh, for me, there's no doubt about it. The cavalcade of cabinet ministers continued today at the inquiry looking into the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. We're getting a behind-the-scenes look at the process that went into the historic decision to use the act last February. The public safety minister Marco Mendicino's marathon testimony, which included what he called his threshold moment when he felt it was time the federal government take action. Now, that moment was when there was concern about violence in Coots, Alberta. So how crucial is this last week of testimony? And why was a lawyer from the convoy organizers removed from the inquiry earlier today? Watching it all has been CTV's senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor. Glenn, thanks for joining us here in studio. Let's start with that moment. We've seen yeah. a lot from this commission so far. Freedom Corp lawyer uh, Brendan Miller was removed from the commission. We have the video that we'll play as we're talking about it here. Tell me exactly what happened. Yeah, so Brendan Miller rose on essentially an objection saying he wanted to get another witness onto the uh, schedule of people who are testifying this week, which is, as you know, are all uh, cabinet ministers or, or top cabinet minister staff. And he was talking about Marco uh, Mendicino's communications director, a guy named Alexander Cohen, uh, sort of a mid-level, I mean, he's a ministerial staffer, yeah. an exempt staffer, political staffer. He decided he wanted to get him to uh, call to testify to answer questions about a not sure exactly what uh, and then he has this clash with uh, judge uh, paul rouleau the commissioner of the inquiry about the procedure rouleau says you got to file a written application right. if you want to do that we're not amending we're got a very tight schedule they got to get everything done by the end of this week uh some back and forth between them it gets snippy rouleau uh basically says he's had enough and he orders security to escort the convoy organizers lawyer out of the hearing room and out of the building out of national archives and the national Library archives and and at, at, like right out onto the street. It was, uh, I've honestly, I've covered a lot of court cases. I'm not sure I've ever seen a lawyer <laughs> tossed out of a courtroom a, before. A, another it was, first. It was, it was a little bizarre and it, it was a day of first. So yes, that was uh, quite, quite unusual. And uh, uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Medicino sitting there kind of going like, what is happening here? It was very strange. At the same time, his testimony was interesting. He talked about that threshold yeah. moment uh, when he thought that it was time to sort of act. What was that? 
This, the threshold moment for him was the night before the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and he gets a telephone call from a Brenda, possibly the afternoon before, from a Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, who he speaks to on a regular basis, of course, because he is the minister responsible for the, for the RCMP. And she lets him in on kind of a, secret, a police secret, and that is the RCMP has two undercover officers in the field in Coots, Alberta, at the blockade there. Lucky is very concerned. She's worried about the potential of violence. They believe there are guns there. They think the people who are there and have access to these guns are very committed to their cause. They're dug in. She's warning there is a potential for violence. Mendicino is obviously quite rattled right. by this, at least according to his testimony. He calls this, as you say, his threshold moment. This is where everything kind of crystallizes. And he says he's got to talk to the prime minister. So he sends a message to uh, Katie Telford, the chief of staff, to the mm -hmm. prime minister. Uh, she apparently sets up this call. And Mendicino shares this information about the fact there are two RCMP officers undercover at this moment. Got to keep that very secret because right. their lives are potentially at risk. He shares this with the prime minister and the prime minister only. Of course, the next day, cabinet meets. They take all these, what they've called inputs, all this information they're getting from all these different sources about the economy, about the security situation, about the policing situation. And they ultimately decide that they are going to invoke the Emergencies Act. But according to Mendicino's testimony, that moment, that phone call with Brenda Lucky was a pivotal moment. And he also said he had no doubts that Lucky believed invocation of the act was the right course to take. Right. We've heard some conflicting testimony, conflicting things. Mendicino had earlier said uh, that no law enforcement uh, officials had advised him to invoke the act kind of backed away from that position today, says that they were clearly asking for things that the act eventually gave right. them, uh, the new authorities, the new powers. So anyway, interesting testimony, and we'll see more of this kind of thing as the week goes. I just want to go back to Brendan Miller for a second, that lawyer from Freedom Corp. Um, you know, he's facing a potential legal challenge right now and questions that, over questions that he made at this inquiry. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Mr. Miller has been using uh, his cross-examination yesterday of David Vino, the director of CSIS, and again today of Marco Mendicino, to advance this theory uh, that he claims to have determined the identity of a masked person who was on, on the first weekend of the convoy carrying a Nazi flag around. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's named him, and I'm not going to name him because it's libelous right. uh, to, to do it, defamatory, and I'm not sure the protection that, that Mr. Miller has in a, in a, in a Safe or not legal to. setting. Yeah. Safe or not to. Anyway, uh, he, he is, he's a Toronto... Uh, um, works for a communications uh, a company down there. Uh, Miller is alleging uh, that this company was somehow acting at behest of the Liberal Party, possibly at the behest of even Katie Telford, because he brought her name up again, suggesting that she has some connection mm -hmm. to, the, to the firm, and uh, that this person did this with the intent of discrediting the convoy movement. Right. Uh, he says, Miller says, that he has an affidavit from a witness who can positively identify this person. Uh, this person, and we've had all the communications from their company, including a letter from their lawyer saying, this guy was nowhere near Ottawa, was right. never in Ottawa. He was in Toronto. He was in Toronto, and uh, he's also a conservative, and he was a supporter of, of Pierre Poilievre during the leadership, uh, and says the whole thing is uh, defamatory, absurd, despicable, they used. But Mr. Miller has cover, because there is a qualified privilege that attaches to lawyers that protects them from defamation actions for things they say in a legal setting. People were jumping on the fact that he repeated it outside the National Archives right. after he got tossed out. My understanding is that privilege, that he says something inside the courtroom, or in this case the hearing room, comes outside and repeats it, that privilege would probably carry over. Right. So he's probably safe from any defamation action. But again, 
I've never, you know, it was a totally bizarre moment. Maybe, ultimately, as this, in the last week, he will produce evidence that shows that this person really was the guy carrying the Nazi right. flag. Uh, it seems improbable at this point. But to be continued either way. To be continued. Yeah. Yes. And we will continue watching as you yeah. have. Yeah. CTV News Senior Political Correspondent Glenn McGregor, thanks so much for this. I appreciate it. Now, we're going to go back to that threshold moment right now as described by Minister Mendicino. So how crucial was that phone call in the government's decision just 24 hours later? And what information does our next guest want to hear from the Prime Minister's inner circle? Let's find out now. Joining me now is Ottawa, former Ottawa Police Chief Charles Bordalo. Thanks for joining us, uh, Mr. Bordalo. Just wanted to ask you first, based on what we've heard from law enforcement officials at various levels and Minister Mendicino's testimony, do you agree that it met this threshold? I think he did a good job in, in outlining the rationale and the context as to why the government felt it was important to, uh, to invoke the act. He provided the, uh, you know, talked about the increased rhetoric, talked about the potential threat of violence uh, and to public safety. And also those those uh, valuable tools that were needed to fill the gaps. So I think he was he was very eloquent in in explaining as to why uh, they wanted to or they needed to invoke uh, the Emergencies Act. But importantly, also it's it's not only to invoke it to restore public safety, but also to maintain it to allow the situation to to stabilize. Because um, a lot of people are asking, well, could the police have done this without the Emergencies Act? And I think it's clear that the police were proceeding especially in Ottawa, and moving towards the operational plan in restoring uh, order. But I think where the Emergency Act comes in is it gave them those extra tools around the financial piece, the access to equipment, the extra squaring in of officers, uh, the restriction zone, to maintain uh, for a number of days uh, that public safety. Yeah, and Minister Mendicino pointed to Coots, Alberta, specifically worrying about that potential violence and a chain reaction. As a former police chief, what do you make of that and, you know, the entirety of, of that sort of calculation? Well, there's no question. I think it was uh, an important moment for the minister, and I think it brought things to, to, to reality. Uh, he talked about the increased rhetoric online and all the information was providing. And when Commissioner Lucky briefed him uh, on the fact that they did have a, an undercover operator uh, working in Coots and that there was a real potential threat of violence that was imminent, I think that was a, a reality check for the minister. I'm not surprised that the RCB had officers undercover there, and I'm sure uh, OPP had uh, officers working in the Ottawa area with, with that convoy uh, to get access to real-time information. But I think uh, it, it brought things to reality for, for the minister, saying this, this is, uh, has the potential to really increase rapidly, and uh, I think it restored and also you know, confirmed the fact that they needed to invoke the act to support uh, law enforcement. I wanted to also ask you, because there's been a lot of discussion about uh, what tools police did or didn't have. D do you think that there's any point in the decision-making process where it really didn't matter what tools police still had at their disposal? I mean, Minister Mendicino says lives were at risk. Do you think that, you know, in terms of the threshold moment, but even to the point that we got in all of this, did it matter what more police could have done given that threshold moment? Uh, I, I think the, the, the pieces around the, the financial uh, and, and cutting off the, uh, the tap towards funding this movement was, was a critical piece that police did not have. That was a gap that the Emergency Act was able to, to fulfill. And also uh, the ability 
to uh, send a clear message that if you are coming to Ottawa or to any of these locations uh, to demonstrate, uh, it is illegal. It's been deemed illegal and you are not allowed to and you can be arrested and you could be charged for it. So that sent a clear message uh, to hopefully deter other individuals uh, to come to uh, to these protest locations and it also potentially helped in the decision-making for protesters that were here uh, to leave the area quicker because now they knew uh, that there was this added piece of legislation uh, that could come down on them with respect to additional types of charges. Mr. Bordolo, just in closing here, other cabinet ministers and then finally the prime minister will be testifying this week. What specifically are you watching for in that? I think, again, it's, it's the rationale uh, around the, the invocation of the Emergencies Act and why the timing of it as well. Uh, those are the types of things uh, that uh, will be in interest. Um, and I think, you know, where the different lawyers are coming from as well, as far as their, uh, their angle on questioning, that, that's going to be very uh, interesting as well uh, to hear from, uh, from the prime minister and other ministers that are involved as to their rationale in, in supporting uh, the invocation. Former Ottawa Police Chief Charles Bordalo, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. We appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Still to come, forcing provinces to put a price on carbon. The federal government is imposing a carbon tax in three Atlantic provinces. What's the re reaction from the premiers out east? We'll speak to Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston when PowerPlay returns. These liberals want to triple, triple, triple the carbon tax. As we we are going into a winter where heating bills are already expected to double. Will the government give relief to Atlanta Canadians, all Canadians, on Canada Day and every day by cancelling the carbon tax? There will be no increase in carbon pricing in Atlantic Canada before July 1st, not before this winter. And in fact, people will start getting the climate incentive payment before the increase in carbon tax in July 1st. No cost, no increased cost to Canadians this winter. Well, the battle over the carbon tax is heading east. The federal carbon price will expand to Canadian consumers in three Atlantic provinces next summer. It also means more Canadians will receive the federal carbon tax rebate, also known as the Climate Action Incentive, which are quarterly payments that residents do receive to offset the financial burden of the carbon tax. But currently, residents in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Yukon and Nunavut do receive that federal carbon backstop. But starting next July... Residents of Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland and Labrador will join that group. BC, Quebec, New Brunswick, and the Northwest Territories will, keep, uh, will get to keep overseeing, overseeing their own carbon pricing systems. Now, it's a reminder here, the federal carbon tax is currently at $50 per tonne, and it will go up next year to $65 per tonne. It'll keep going up and up by $15 annually until it reaches $170 per tonne in the year 2030. Now, in a latch-ditch effort to prevent that price on pollution, Premier Tim Houston sent a letter to Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault last night. In it, he said Nova Scotians continue to struggle with the high cost of heating their homes and gassing up their vehicles. The federal government responded by saying the tax will only take effect in the summer. Guilbeault also points out, under the federal system, most Canadians get rebate checks to, to offset those price increases. So 
Is that enough for the Premier? And what other ways is he suggesting to help fight climate change in a province that was just rocked by Hurricane Fiona? Let's find out. Joining me now from Halifax is Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston. Premier, thanks so much for making the time. I wanted to get right into it and ask you about the statement that you released opposing the federal government's decision to impose the carbon tax. You said it comes when Nova Scotians are dealing with high prices to, their, to heat their homes. Now, the federal plan will only take effect in the summer. Does that make you feel any better about it today? Uh, well, no, thanks for having me, but no, because the issue is we're going to have winters past this particular winter. So the reality is, is Nova Scotians are, we're environmentalists at heart. If you think about our, our traditional industries, we, we do what we can to protect the planet. We're always focused on protecting the planet and, and this carbon tax won't do it. Uh, what this carbon tax will do is make things more expensive, make life more expensive. Uh, price of gasoline, price of home heating, price of everything will go up with a carbon tax. But we know the carbon tax is designed to, and I think the, the minister has said this, modify behaviors. But it's, it can't modify the behavior of Nova Scotians. They have to drive. We live in a very rural province. 41% of Nova Scotians live in a rural area. They have to drive to work, to ballet practice, to hockey practice. We don't have the option of, of uh, public transportation. We don't have the option of walking, biking. We have to drive. So no matter how high the price of gas goes, people still have to drive. And the facts will show that out. So the carbon tax, uh, for, as far as we're concerned uh, in Nova Scotia, it won't protect the planet because we have to continue to do these things. We actually made a number of proposals to the federal government that were focused on actually protecting the planet, but they weren't interested in those. So we're, we're, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate that it's come to this. It will penalize Nova Scotians without any real upside to protecting the planet. You say penalize, but the federal government says that a family of four in your province is, is expected to receive $248 each quarter in rebates. Then there's also that 10% top up for people who are living in rural communities. And the feds have committed $250 million in grants to help people get off expensive home heating oil. You don't think those measures are going to help set offset some of the extra costs? Uh, well, listen, we have we have a, a high percentage of Nova Scotians that still use uh, home heating oil, over 200,000 homes. So for sure, that's an issue here in the province. So the program to try and help uh, help us transition those people away. That's good. It's a start. It's it's an expensive initiative, and and you know we'll look for details on that federal program. We thank them for their recognition that this is a real issue. The same thing on the rebates, and and I think even when you look at the the little bump for the rural area, that's them recognizing uh, that this is a real issue in this province. So. Uh, I don't accept the position of the federal government that the carbon tax is a money maker for families. Uh, every time I hear the federal government say that people will, you know, these rebates will be more than they pay and people will be better off, then I ask myself, why would we do that? Why even do this if is if this just if this is a money maker for people then what what's the what's the real goal of this right so um, I don't you know the rebate is something but in terms of the costs that families are going to just get you know uh, buried under uh, the rebate's not going to this is not a money maker for people I just don't believe that I wanted to ask you about the plan that you submitted. It was to tax large emitters like Nova Scotia Power and Lafarge Cement Plant. Now, some critics have called it half a plan to tackle climate change. In the months after your province was hit very hard by Hurricane Fiona, do you not have a strong argument to take swifter action to fight, to fight climate change? Yeah, that's why we want to see real action. The carbon tax is not that. I mean, we, we, we're, we have incredible opportunities in Nova Scotia to incredible offshore wind speeds. We need the federal government to work with us on the regulations there. We have, you know, uh, the Bay of Fundy is such an asset. Uh, these are real opportunities. The federal government had a choice. 
they could support us on, on moving forward on offshore wind. They could support us on the Bay of Fundy. They could support Nova Scotia in really being a force in the production of green hydrogen. These are things that would change, have m massive changes to not only to our economy, but really to protecting our planet. These are big opportunities. And the federal government has looked away from all those things and said, we're not interested really in that. What we want to do is put a carbon tax on Nova Scotians. And we, we showed them the stats that if, if they would have worked with us on those types of initiatives, the reductions in greenhouse gases would, you know, we could reduce greenhouse gas by 17%, you know, over a certain period of time versus a carbon tax, which would be negligible, maybe 2% at best. So if this was really about protecting the planet, they would have worked with us. They didn't have a good argument for why they wouldn't work with us other than, well, if we worked with you, we'd have to work with other provinces. And I, I just don't, it's unfortunate, right? It didn't. But, but Premier, can, can they not do both? Can they not work with you on wind power and have a carbon tax? Well, the carbon tax is, is not going to protect the planet. It's going to penalize Nova Scotians. It's going to, going to make life more affordable. We're still going to have to drive. We're still going to have to heat our homes. We're still going to have to do all these things. So it can't actually achieve its stated goal. The stated goal of the carbon tax is to modify behaviors. And those you don't think it will? Really... You don't think if people are seeing those high prices at the pumps that they will eventually try and modify their behavior, either going to uh, more fuel-efficient vehicles or the such? Well, they still got to drive to work. You know, unless we don't want them to work, they still have to drive their kids to kids' activities, right? So, I mean, I think this is the point, right? So when I hear, uh, you know, federal ministers saying, well, gee, I live in Toronto. It isn't it great because I have all these choices. And we don't have those choices, right? It's very disrespectful to just push this down on somebody who has to drive. So you can make, you know, look, the stats show that when gasoline was at its highest price, the volumes of gasoline sold in this province didn't really change because we have to drive. I think that's the point. And I think, uh, you know, the fact even even uh, with respect with the questions that are coming you know, that you just stated there, it just shows like the, the lack of understanding of how this really can't have a positive impact. Uh, people still have to drive, right? Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.